Thanks for the wonderful music. Was that an Irish tune? It sure sounds Irish, doesn't it? <laughs> it is. It was beautiful. Uh, before we pray, I, I have one other announcement to, to make about um, uh, the celebration of life service for Bill Green is le- next Sunday at uh, the um, uh, Hood River Alliance Church at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And uh, the Negreen family has asked for volunteers to help, um, help them set up and also take down and clean up when, and when the service is over. There is a sheet where the, where the women's uh, luncheon is. There's also another sheet out there on a, on, a, on a clipboard where you can sign up for that if you can, uh, if you can help either before or after. It just helps to know that we, who can we expect and who's, who's coming. So if you could do that, that would really appreciate it. Let's pray. Our eternal God, you have been the hope and joy of so many generations and so many people, and we call on you um, to renew our hope and joy. Call us to to seek you, but we also know that you're you're not hard to find, that you want to be found. Father, we ask this morning that uh, we ask for clear vision on your truth when it seems to be um, fuzzy. Uh, We ask for greater faith in your power when we feel weak. Uh, We want to be more confident in the assurance of your love. So Lord, sometimes the way seems dark uh, and ask you that you teach us how to walk in the dark and trust and sometimes things seem blurry and uh, we ask for faith and trust to make make that step by step. And so, Father, with, we ask that for you give us the insight and discernment to, uh, to navigate our times and our places where we live and that uh, we hold fast to you when we don't know things, when we have doubt, uh, that you, we, we want to make it up. If we can't trust, at least we can love. And so, Father, I ask you to empower us to do that. We thank you for sending your Son to be the light in the darkness, that we can uh, see what you're like by looking at him. And Father, we want to take that to heart. We, uh, we know that you uh, surround us with your loving kindness. And so we pledge ourselves to you in trust. Even when things don't look well, even hard times, uh, we stand on your strength and not our own. So Father, we ask that you help us to be Christ followers in actions and not just words. That we follow you with our lives as well as our words. And Father, we pray for the people in our congregation, those who are making, who are facing um, uh, really important decisions, those who are ill and uh, and things may look bleak. We ask for healing. We ask for um, uh, the courage and the strength to surround them with ourselves and with our love, so that we can support them in any way we can. So, Father, we give them to you, and we give our congregation to you, and ask that you work among us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. We are continuing on our, our uh, series on Mark, and we're in, in uh, Mark chapter 6. Uh, probably one of the most famous paintings in the whole world is this one, the Mona Lisa. Uh, they get about 6 million views a, a year. Uh, and what's uh, really surprisingly and it, is that uh, a lot of people leave kind of underwhelmed. 
Uh, they're not really sure what the big deal. What's the big deal with all this? But you can, it, everyone recognizes it, and it's been used, you know, all kinds of twists and turns and used to make gifts, you know, like, like that. Um, um, you know, here's an anime Mona Lisa. And you can get a T-shirt, dabbing a little bit, I guess, and uh, on a tie. You can get it on, yeah, I saw you can get it on socks, but this is my favorite. You can get on Etsy and get your dog. Uh, painted as Mona Lisa in a, you know, a gift for your loved ones. Uh, what's unusual, the, the reason that, that you, it's kind of underwhelming when people go, and it was the same thing happened to me. You go and you fight the crowds when we were in Paris at Katie's uh, wedding, and uh, it's just jam-packed. The room is just jam-packed, and you get up there, and it's, and it's really crowded. You can't get close to it. It's a lot smaller than you thought it would be. And so you do kind of walk away a little underwhelmed, or at least I did, and I kind of, what's the big deal about this? You know, I, I really was overwhelmed by the, the, the Van Gogh room in the Dorsey much more than, than the Mona Lisa. But people flock to it, and part of the reason is the overfamiliarity. We make such, you know, silly things out of the painting itself, and it's almost like her, her fame is more famous than the painting itself. And uh, people who get have a better idea, understand what's going on, why it's so great, is they're either artists or art students, or they have a guide, or they go someone who knows art, uh, which was my fortunate uh, uh, event. And uh, when they show you other things that are painted in that same, same time period, uh, and then you compare it to the Mona Lisa, you can kind of understand, okay, where the greatness comes from. That uh, Leonardo da Vinci had mastered this, this style of basically creating this, mag this magical portrait uh, without lines. It's all with, with shading and color and everything. And you go to the other things, other paintings of that period, and people are using lines. In other words, he didn't draw the eyes. Just with the colors and the shades, these eyes appeared. And so you kind of understand that. Well, because of the over-familiarity, people kind of get disappointed. It's not as big, it's not as pretty, it's not as cool as we thought it was. And so they kind of get underwhelmed. It's kind of an underwhelming feeling. And that's, we're going to look at this a little bit later, but I feel like somehow that's, that's also true here in the, in the United States with Jesus. And it was also true when Jesus went back to his hometown. Uh, a little bit of the over-familiarity, he was suffering from the kind of the same thing the Mona Lisa suffers from, that he was so familiar that it's just, they were just kind of underwhelmed. So that's how the chapter starts off. He comes back from Capernaum into, the, into the, uh, his hometown. It actually doesn't really say that it's Nazareth, but we assume it is because that's his hometown. And uh, the, he, people have this false sense of certainty about what Jesus is like just like we do today. Sometimes we have this false sense of certainty that we know what Jesus is like, but they haven't really experienced it. They haven't really delved into what he is all about. And so uh, I've divided into a couple of, couple of chapters, these next two chapters, and we come back and Jesus has found himself to be a stranger at home. He comes back home to his hometown and uh, he expounds the law and the prophets in the synagogue. And uh, and the word there kind of implies that everybody, the whole congregation was there to hear him. This is probably the same incident that we read in Luke chapter 4. And uh, Luke chapter 4, Luke gives us a little bit more details of what's been going on. And so he is expounding the, the law and the prophets, and um, they don't really understand it that well. And they look at it and go, wait a minute, this is just Jesus. And they say, we're hearing what you're saying, but... 
we know you. We know who you are. And if you look at Luke, he takes the prophet Isaiah and he reads it and he says, it's fulfilled now in your presence. And what he's saying is that this whole story of Israel, of God choosing Israel, now converges on Jesus the Messiah. All things are pointing now to him right now. And they responded by trying to throw him off a cliff. Okay, that's what Luke tells us. Mark just says, they, they got questions here. We, we got some questions to, to ask you about that. Where did, where did this knowledge come from? Where did you get that? Uh, what's the source of your, your wisdom? Where did you get all that stuff? You weren't trained as a rabbi like we're used to it. You're a carpenter. You're a laborer like the rest of us. Why are you so special? And so they've got questions about all this stuff and go, yeah, we heard about your miracles. We heard about you healing people and all this kind of stuff. But where did that power come from? Well, it only come from one of two places. It's either demonic or it's of God. And we saw this back in Mark chapter 3 where they accused him of being possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. So that's really what it comes down to. It's either what you're doing here is pretty amazing and we're astonished. They, the, the scripture just says that they were astonished, but they were astonished in not a good way. They were astonished like, we're not so sure about this. We're a little underwhelmed here. Uh, we're not sure. We, we saw you. We watched you grow up. And we're kind of skeptical. And remember in chapter 3, his own family thought he was insane and tried to keep him quiet. Now the family does come around later on. But right here in his hometown, they're like, eh, I'm not so, not so sure about this. There's nothing extraordinary about you. You're just a carpenter like the rest of us. You're just a worker like the rest of us. But if you do do this stuff, it's either demonic or it's God. One of the two. And Jesus realizes that there's no honor in a hometown. He is a stranger at home. And this, this is kind of an axiom. This is kind of a phrase that no prophet is welcome or it gives, has honor in his hometown. And this is what happens with Jesus. And you can tell there's also even these derogatory marks that we know him. We know his brothers. We know his family. We know he, he's, a, he's a carpenter. And isn't he the son of Mary? Now, usually in this time period especially, you identify somebody by the son of the father. But they said, oh, you're the son of Mary. And I think that's another little bit of resentment thrown in there that, hey, even your birth is a little questionable here. You know, we we're thinking you might be, you know, your birth is illegitimate. And so they're full of resentment, full of questions. And, and Jesus says, you know what? A prophet's not welcome in his hometown. He has no honor. And so he goes on. And it, what the, Mark has this really interesting phrase. It says, and he was amazed. This is the only time that Peter, I mean, that Mark says that Jesus is amazed. That he's astonished. We saw Jairus amazed when his daughter was, risen, was raised from the dead. We saw the people were amazed when the demonic man, the, the man possessed by demon, was then in his right mind and being telling everybody what happened. Uh, the disciples were amazed when Jesus quieted the storms in the boat. Well, here Jesus is amazed, and it's not a good amazement. He's amazed because of their unbelief. And he says he wasn't able to do works and miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, 
Does that mean that God's power kind of gets a spigot, gets shut off if we don't believe enough? That in order for God to work, or God to be able to work, we have to psych ourselves up to believe, our, to believe this and say, tell ourselves he's going to do this, he's going to do this, and we believe just enough and go, God will work. That's not it at all. He was unable to, do, to work his, uh, his healing or just a few healings in this, in, in this place because of the circumstances. He wasn't free to do his ministry. Why not? I was thinking about this. And I think for a couple of reasons. That if he had done what he does in other places, raise people, heal a lot of people, if he'd done these things, their, their automatic knee-jerk reaction was, we were right, he's got Beelzebub. He's possessed by demons. And it would just add more and more guilt onto them. And the other reason I go back to what Kinder was saying earlier about the temptations of Christ and in this sort of circumstances, in this atmosphere, Jesus would have been falling for the temptation of the devil. In other words, he would have been performing these miracles to do the spectacular just to try to get them to follow him. And he would be falling right into the trap of Satan. Do something spectacular, they'll come around. Get off the high, this high point of the temple and jump off. That'll, that'll convince them. But Jesus' message is much more than that. It's much more than just wanting to wow them with a magic show. And he said, I can't do this here. The circumstances are not right. It would just add more guilt onto the people. And so he moves on, and Mark says he went around preaching at the other villages. And so he leaves his hometown. And he's with his disciples, and he's teaching them how to be at home among strangers. And so this next paragraph, Jesus is saying, saying this, this is what we're going to do. We need to expand our ministry. We need to go beyond this. And this whole section here from in chapter 6, we're really beginning in chapter 5, but chapter 6, we're starting to see this division between belief and unbelief. And the division just gets sharper and sharper, and it gets more and more dangerous. And we'll see this next week when we talk about the death of John the Baptist. So things are getting dicey right now for Jesus. And he wants to, but he wants to expand his ministry. And so he takes his disciples and he's going to send them out. He wants to send them out and commission them. And he commissions them with word and with power. And so he delegates them. And, what, and when, when it talks about uh, somebody commissioning or delegating some of this, the people that represent, they are actually, how you respond to the delegates is how you would respond to the person who sent them. If it's the delegates of a king, how you respond to those delegates tells you what you, would, what you would respond to the king. And so they are in his place, and they are going out, and they're going out two by two with word and power, the power to overcome the demonic forces, the ones that grip us. And they have power, and they have word, and they go out two by two. Why? Probably for some protection and support, but I also have to th think that it probably has to do with the Jewish law, that when there are two, two testimonies and there are two witnesses, the message is more credible. And so they're sending them out two by two, and he says, don't take, a, don't take a, a bread, no bread, no money. You can take your staff. Don't take an extra clothes, and uh, you can wear sandals. That's it. That's all you can take. Now, are they just becoming minimalists now? You know, is, that, is that the point? 
The point is that he wants them to learn to depend solely on God. That they will depend solely on the Father who will then provide the hospitality that they need. So they depend totally on them. And then he says, this is a different group. You are a different movement. Because there were other revolutionary movements at the time. There were other subversive movements of the time. And the one that comes to mind is the Sakari. And I think I've mentioned this before. It was a group of, of uh, basically, some historians say they were the first organized assassins. Uh, they were Jewish people who wanted to get the yoke of Rome off of them. And the way they did it was basically they were terrorists. They're called the Sicarii, which means the dagger man. And they carried this dagger, and they would assassinate leaders in the Roman Empire that were around in the Jewish, in the Palestinian area. And these people were like our modern-day guerrillas. They would run in, they would take, and they would eat, and then they would run. But Jesus is telling his disciples, no, you stay. You let them provide hospitality to you. You are different. You are going to be different. And he says, whenever you find a, a home base in a village, you stay there until it's time to move on to the next one. Why is that? Well, I wonder if somebody else came along and found out that these guys were doing some really remarkable things, and uh, somebody comes along and says, hey, I've got a bigger house over here. It's got a king-size bed, you know, and uh, it's got indoor bathroom, you know. And, they were supposed to, and Jesus said, no, you stay where you are. The people who give you hospitality, you stay where you are, and you depend solely on God. And what are they supposed to do? This is their supreme task. Knowing Jesus is participatory. In other words, to really know Jesus, not like the village, not like the home that he was in, you have to move beyond that, the familiarity. And you know this by participating. And he's calling his disciples to participate in his ministry. Do the same things that I'm doing. Do the same things that I'm, say the same things that I'm saying. And what is the message? His message is repent. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are repent, according to Mark. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15 he says, now John was in prison and Jesus went to Galilee and proclaimed the gospel of God. And he said, the time was fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the gospel. That's their message. And we'll talk about this a little bit later on, is to repent. And he's also given them the power to heal and the power over demonic forces. Again, this is not to wow anybody. This is not to make pizzazz. This is not to impress people with, with fireworks. This gives character to the message. That his message of repent is not about reward and punishment. This message is about healing. It's about wholeness. It's about deliverance. It's about forgiving. It's about make peacemaking. That's the message. This is the gospel. This is the kingdom that are laying out for you. And to show that, that this is what the kingdom is like, we are doing this. The, the healing and the deliverance and the, and the exorcism, those are characters of the message. They're not just to impress people. They give us what the idea of the message is like. This is the supreme task. I'm going to apply this to us. Our supreme task 
what is our supreme task? Our supreme task is to preach change. That's what repent means. It means to change. That's all it means. We have this idea in the West that repent kind of means, oh, you know, you've been a naughty boy and you need to feel bad about what you just done. I want you to sit over there and think about what you did and repent, okay? Or we think of the angry TV preacher, you know, it's all about rewarding punishment who, punishment, who is telling you to repent. you got to feel bad about your sins so that you can get forgiven and don't ever do that ever again. But that's really not the idea at all. I mean, there's, there's truth in that. Don't do that again. <laughs> but, but the idea there is just change. That there is a new way of living. There is a new radical way of living. That changes totally to where you have been before. And if we're, not, if we're not careful, we've got to get this right. Because if we're not careful and we repent in some of the, the misuse of the word, then not only does it hurt, and it doesn't really last very long, it's not people that's going to stay with it for, for a long period of time over time, but it also hurts us. Because it creates this, uh, what, what Richard Rohr calls this cult of innocence, where we are innocent. Everyone else needs to repent. I am innocent. I am certain. I am right. I am superior. And it, and it can take on groupthink, too, where we as Christians think we're superior. We're certain. And I want a religion that will tell me what I already know. I want a religion that will that will uh, tell me that I'm certain about these things. And I can tell everybody else to repent, but that damages us too because we become part of this cult of innocence. We're the good guys. Now, hopefully, Christ lives through us. But a misuse of that word can, can communicate the wrong thing, and it hurts our soul as well. So Jesus' commission is that this thing is, is much bigger than our normal word for repent. It's much, much bigger than that. You know, what he's talking about is, is it's, you're going the wrong way. Let me show you a better way. You've been living like this, but this is not right. This is not good for you. Let me show you another way. A radical leaving of an old life and a radical entrance into a new life. It's a radical break of what you've been doing. And so we change. We, we, we change from our e anger, our bitterness, our, our need to be right, our self-obsession, our addictions, our dualistic thinking, uh, our thinking that, that our emotional needs can be met if I just start buying a bunch of junk. We, sing, we leave all of that. And we say, this is a new way of living. This is a new way to do things that this treasure is right in front of us. And it's a new, new life. But we also have to live the change. And I think that's what he's doing with these disciples. When he tells them that they are healing and that they are, they are um, they're casting out demons, they are to live the change. There's a lot of ideologies out there, and the church isn't immune to these, that are not good that are dehumanizing, they are, they are damaging, and the gospel, the kingdom of God says no to that. No to, to these ideologies that are dehumanizing and that are dangerous. This is different. The early church community, 
in the New Testament and then in the first couple of centuries. They lived a different way. In the world they lived in, they were part of a pagan culture. And then all of a sudden these Christians, these Jesus followers, they stopped going to the temple. They stopped doing the sacrifices to the idols. They stopped participating in the processions. And that can be very disturbing. Those people are not like us. They're not doing the things we do. But then they start to notice some other things. They start to notice that they, they care for the poor. They start noticing that they, they care for sick people. And they start noticing that, they're, that they're, they're interested in education and teaching people to read. And that's different. They start noticing this is different. And then they tell the story about Jesus. And so they listen to these Jesus stories and go, oh, so that's why you live the way you do. That makes sense. And I think the same thing applies to us in America. That we, we lead cheerful, helpful, humble lives. And then when we tell people about Jesus, they go, so that's why you live like that. Because Jesus did this. Now I get it. Now I understand. And the same thing about the, the beauty of the world. That God created this incredibly beautiful planet. This incredibly beautiful world that we live in. And if we don't appreciate that as well as the art and the music and all the other beautiful things that human beings can produce, then they're going to see nothing but ugliness in Christianity instead of the beauty of Jesus Christ. So we live in this cheerful, radical way and the stories start to make sense because the kingdom of God is, is Jesus, is God putting things right. The next thing is you leave the results in God's hands. They will face rejection. They will face opposition. And when Jesus said that a, a prophet is not honored in his hometown, I think Mark is telegraphing this, that ultimately official Judaism will ultimately reject him. And Jesus is telling them that you too will face opposition. You too will face, face some attacks. And I think Mark is writing this and recording this to tell his people that people who are reading it in the first century and as well as us that yes, you will face attacks and you will face rejection and you will face opposition. And what do you do about that? Well, you brush the dust off your sandals and move on. You leave the results to God. You let God handle it. Instead of attack, instead of move, instead of, instead of uh, criticize, you just let God handle it. The Sakari, when they got opposed, they kill you. Jesus' disciples are different. Yes, they are rejecting the kingdom of God. They are rejecting the offer. You brush off the dust of your sandals as a sign that this, they are in God's hands from now on. And God gets to type, decide. He gets to decide how to handle it how to handle this thing. When I was growing up and got involved in the youth group and, and um, you know, got involved in, in more involved in Christian stuff and, and uh, getting involved, you know, I was, I was told that, you know, people's souls, their eternal destiny depended on whether you were going to witness or not. 
and you needed to witness to your friends and school and all these places because if you don't, they could go to hell. Now, you're talking to a teenager who was um, irresponsible enough to forget that he had to build a model of the Alamo the night before it was due. <laughs> okay? And you're going to tell me that I'm responsible for that? I don't think so because I'm a pretty irresponsible guy, especially when you're 16. And so you have carried this guilt, but this passage to me tells, you, tells me, leave it into God's hands. Not your job. Not your job. Do what you can. You're supposed to, to live and preach the gospel, but then leave the results to God. Growing up in the Methodist church, we used to pray this prayer, especially during Lent, uh, called the prayer of collect. Uh, it's spelled like collect, but I think it's pronounced collect, or at least that's what they used to say. And it goes like this. Almighty God, to you our hearts are open. All desires are known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. It's one of those prayers that was printed in the bulletin and we read. And notice that it did not say, Almighty Tommy, uh, you know the hearts of all of those people. You know what's going on in their lives. It doesn't say that. It says, Almighty God. And we, are, we naturally kind of assume, okay, God knows what all, of the, all the things that's going inside. He knows my evil schemes. He knows my desires. He knows my pride. He knows my envy. And that's true. But I think we could also apply it to our siblings, our friends, our church, our brothers and sisters, our parents, our kids, that I don't know what you're thinking. And I don't need to assume that. I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know that. Uh, the 12-step uh, addiction method says that uh, the, the difference between God and Tommy is that God doesn't desire to be Tommy. <laughs> he doesn't pretend to be or long to be. The other way around, yes. Yeah, I can think that I'm God and know your thoughts and know your desires. And I know your motives and I know, but I don't. I don't. We leave it to God. Leave the results to him. And that may be a little disappointing at first because you think you can judge people's motives and things. That may be a little disappointing. But let me tell you, it is so freeing. It is so much liberty. It's so much easier. And it frees up a lot of time without having to guess people's motives and assumptions and their decisions. We don't read their hearts and it may be disappointing, but really it is a relief. So I need to stop telling myself that I can tell who's thinking what. I can't. I can't. We leave the results to God. And finally, we move beyond the shallow familiarity. We move beyond the shallow familiarity. There are two messages in these two paragraphs. One is, there is a knowing of Jesus, and then there is knowing Jesus. Those people in his hometown, they knew Jesus. They saw it. They watched him grow up, but they didn't know Jesus. How do we know that? Because they didn't love Jesus. So that's lesson number one. And the lesson number two is that knowing Jesus, that is the base for our evangelism. That is the base, not only the motivational base, but also the doctrinal base, the practical base, 
loving him, knowing him, that is the base for everything we do. That is the base for our evangelism. That what we are often is wholeness, healing, freedom, forgiveness, mercy. It is this treasure that is set in front of us of hope and healing and mercy and, 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 and grace just waiting for us to open it and take it and receive it. That every wrongdoing, every wrongdoing, every wrongdoing done to me, every wrongdoing done to you that I do, it's no match for the mercy of God. No match for the mercy. That's a treasure. That resentment, there's no resentment too heavy that I can't lay it in his arms. There's no pride that's so strong or assumptions that he can't wash away. It is this treasure in front of us. And we can stay shallow. Um, we can uh, stay shallow and just know about Jesus and be ultra familiar with Jesus. Or we can know Jesus. We can love him. And I've shared my testimony. We, talked, we talked about it on the, on the, the uh, Theology on Tap Thursday. I, I grew up immersed in Christianity. I don't think there was ever a day where I did not believe. But there were lots of days that I didn't love. And, I, and it, was, well, it was not until I was probably a teenager that I really realized just how compelling Jesus is. I believed him all my life. I believed all the right stuff. But then I realized how compelling he is. And then I went through all this stuff. And then I, I mentioned this before, this sort of major crisis of faith. And all I did was just have these doubts. And all I did was read the Gospels for a year. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And I realized just what a compelling person of history Jesus is. And that's what motivates us. That's what moves us. And say, yeah, he can come and he cleanses every fear. He cleanses resentment. He, he cleanses our self-loathing. He cleanses our self-pity. That's a pretty good offer, I think. And that's, what, that's the message that we have. That's the message of repent. And then we live it out as well. Knowing Jesus is something we participate in. We have to participate to really know Jesus. Participate with him and know him. That is the supreme task of healing, peacemaking, hope, forgiving. In our world today, I think Jesus suffers from the, the uh, Mona Lisa syndrome. That um, in our Christendom today, uh, Jesus is used for all kinds of things. He is used to rationalize all kinds of things and, and believe all kinds of things. It is shaped like this. And we use Jesus to, as an ends to a mean. I mean, a means to an end. To get what we want, we will use him in all kinds of ways. But we don't have to panic. Yes, our churches are bleeding. Less and less people are going to church today than ever before in, the, in America. But we don't have to panic. Because I think this may be a great opportunity to help people see Jesus with fresh eyes. To help people see Jesus that it's not what we think it is, not what we see on the news, that we can see him with fresh eyes, that we can almost share Jesus from scratch. Almost from scratch. And I don't know if you've had contact with, with other non-believers and stuff, and, and they, it's really fascinating that they can see that this is not 
what we always thought about, about Jesus. Again, I want to quote uh, Richard Rohr from Breathing Underwater. He says, without really knowing Jesus, Christianity becomes part of the problem, not the solution. Without knowing Jesus, Christianity just solidifies anger. It creates enemies and almost always becomes exclusionary. Knowing Jesus is the base for effective evangelism. Knowing Jesus means loving him. This is the message. That we don't, it's not a movement like we think it is, but it is a movement of mercy and grace and love. And without it, we become the problem and not the solution. And as my life was just, Jesus was familiar. Baptized when I was a baby. Opening the, going into the church every time the doors were open. But it took a while for him to become compelling for me. That this is the most interesting person in history. And I can follow him. And he offers something that's so great. My um, dad's favorite hymn was in the garden. And I could still hear his tenor voice singing this at the top of his lungs in church. And most of us know it. Uh, it says, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Not everybody knows the last verse of this hymn. I'd stay in the garden with him, through the night around me be falling, though the night around me be falling. But he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling. Now, we can succumb to two errors in the garden. One is that we get into the garden and we never want to leave. We stay there forever. And if we don't hear those voices of woe, we would stay there forever. And if you're not hearing those voices of woe, then perhaps your spirituality is more self-centered than it is Christ-centered. That's one error. The other error is that all you hear is the voices of woe. And all you hear, and maybe you're busy trying to correct those and trying to help, and, and so you never spend time in the garden well, then you're going to burn out because you have nothing to sustain you. I believe this hymn is so wonderful because of this balance, this rhythm of spending time in the garden and then hearing the voices of woe and taking the message out and then spending the time in the garden and listening for the voices of woe and so you go out. That's, that's the rhythm that you spend time not just hearing and not just hearing the voices and not just being time in the, in, the, in the garden, but you take the fruit from the garden and you take it out when you hear the voices of woe. That's knowing Jesus. That's what I mean by knowing Jesus is participatory. It is a rhythm. And I think, what would Shepherd of the Valley be like if we took this as our supreme task? The supreme task of healing, of reconciling, of forgiving, of offering hope, of peacemaking, offering life, abundant and eternal. This was our supreme task. 
what would Shepherd of the Valley be if we adopt this as our supreme task? I think Jesus' commission of the apostles here is just our commission as well. We preach change. We live change. We leave the, we, we leave the results to God, and we really be, move beyond familiarity, the curse of familiarity, and look at the person of Christ and just how compelling and how loving he is. It's participatory. We have to do it. We participate with him to do it. Father, we thank you for the word that challenges us. Father, help us to, to um, move beyond the reward and punishment obsession. But we see just what the offer is and that radically changes our lives. That we radically lose the old life and we radically enter the new one. And it's in the name of our Savior that we ask this. And Amen.